Hello and welcome to Prairie Design Lab, a podcast that focuses on innovation in architecture and design from a prairie perspective. My name is Terry McLeod and I produce the lab in collaboration with the faculty, graduates and students of the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3, an episode I call Passive. In a moment, you'll find out why. Today we have the story of Buffalo Crossing, an innovative living exhibit of sustainable construction about to be built at Fort White Alive in Winnipeg. Fort White is dedicated to creative outdoor recreation and education. Buffalo Crossing will be the first commercial building in all of Manitoba to achieve passive house certification. In a moment, I'll be joined by three members of Stantec, the Canadian global architecture and engineering firm that is designing Buffalo Crossing. But first, a conversation with Liz Wilson, the CEO of Fort White Alive. We're standing here at the site where Buffalo Crossing will be built, but before we talk about it, how do you describe Fort White Alive? I would start by saying that we are uh, about 20% of Winnipeg's green space. We are 660 acres located in uh, the southern part of Winnipeg, southwest Winnipeg, and we started as an environmental education and outdoor recreation facility that has grown over the years into the size and scale that we are now. So we offer educational programming uh, for nature and wildlife education. Our mission is to connect more people with nature, to get people outside, get them experiencing everything we have to offer here. We have lakes, we have forest, we have grasslands. Why did you want to build the first commercial building in Manitoba to achieve passive house certification? This was a dream that was started before I came to Fort White. My predecessor, Bill Elliott, and uh, my colleague, Ian Barnett, are the two um, here that really had this dream and really dug into energy efficiency in buildings. And how could we at Fort White make a difference by demonstrating how we can contribute to educating people about the climate crisis using built infrastructure. Passive house is really the epitome of energy efficiency in buildings and there's a few passive houses, residences in Manitoba, I think two. There are no commercial buildings in Manitoba and part of that is because of our harsh climate. So passive house is built on principles that use no thermal bridging in a building construction, um, an incredibly tight sealed building envelope, thermal insulation, and very low mechanical uh, requirements for heating and cooling. The walls on a passive house building are incredibly thick with insulation and the, the type of materials that are used to construct the building. The building should be able to regulate its own temperature for occupancy comfort. Does it have any heating or cooling system? Well, in Manitoba, in Winnipeg, yes, we are going to have to, just in case, because there are so many different factors now with, with climate change and climate events that are so much more severe than we've ever experienced. So, you know, our, our winters get so cold and our summers get so hot now. So the building itself has to be designed so that it can take the advantage of solar gains and use that for heating but then also be careful you don't get too much heat from the sun so we actually in the summer we'll have to shade some of the windows to help the building regulate itself when you were deciding that you wanted buffalo crossing to be built what kind of terms did you lay out for the 
architects and for the builders to be able to create the kind of building that you imagine. Well, because it's so new, not only to us, but to the actual the trades and the building community here in Manitoba, we have to learn first. So we um, engaged Collier's project leaders as our owner's representatives. Um, PCL here in, in Winnipeg is our construction manager. And then we went through a very rigorous request for proposal process where we went out to the design community and we laid out an RFP that was, or an RFQ that was very specific. We said, we want the building to be passive house certified on your building team you need to have all the engineers and design people that you would normally have in a, on a build but then you also need to have an energy modeler a passive house expert and we also asked for an indigenous consultant because we are here at Fort White we are on Treaty 1 territory and we have a responsibility to respect the land that we are on and make sure whatever we do here is in the best interest of the land that we're on and going forward with a, an effort towards reconciliation. And another piece of the requirement is that they had to also educate themselves on passive house certification and design and building techniques and they then in turn would have to help educate the trades here in Manitoba. So now we worry about are we going to get an inflation in price because builders are concerned that they don't know what's involved in that type of building? Are we going to have to worry about trades here in, in Manitoba that don't know how to build to this standard? Again, a challenge is that it is a premium to a standard build. So again, as a nonprofit charitable organization trying to raise money to build this building, we could do it cheaper and get uh, most of our objectives accomplished, but that's not what, what we want to do here. We want to take that, that leap. We want to be innovators and we want to lead by example. And for us, that's building the most energy efficient building that is as easy on the planet as it can be. We're standing here now on the very southerly portion of the Fort White Alive, 660 acres of property. You can almost hear the sound of McGilvery Boulevard, very, very busy highway. And this is going to be where you're building Buffalo Crossing. Why did you choose this site? This is the original site of where Fort White was first started. We have a, a seasonal building here that we have run a lot of our recreational uh, water programs out of and some of our summer camps. The building is almost 50 years old and it's showing its wear and tear. We need to do something here. We want to have a southern gateway to the, to the rest of our property. So we have our interpretive center and our alleyway reception center and our Fort White Farms are in the center of our property and we have active transportation access for cyclists and people on foot at the north end at Sterling Lion but this is really an underused part of our facility. We want to make sure that we don't overuse any of the resources on the property so that's why this site uh, was really key is it's an access to the rest of our property. It also gives us some access and frontage on McGilvery to allow people to see us and to be aware of us. What kind of financial challenge will the design and construction of Buffalo Crossing be for Fort White Alive? Constructing in a pandemic situation is a lot more costly than say it would have been a year and a half to two years ago. Uh, we are incredibly fortunate to have funding from the federal government through their infrastructure programs. The provincial government um, has almost matched that dollar for dollar. We have the Richardson Foundation and the Albrechtson Foundation are both donors to the building already. So it's given us enough to know that we can do it. We still have several million dollars 
dollars that we will be putting out a, a capital campaign and an ask to the community to get involved and I, I I'm not concerned at all that we'll be able to to meet the target that we we need to get the building built Buffalo Crossing will allow us to to become more accessible we are not linked to any city of winnipeg transit routes at the moment so mcgillivray is also a very important location for us because we will be able to bring visitors here that have not previously been able to get to fort white unless you had a vehicle as well it will allow us to offer a building fully accessible uh, to the public that will help our visitors learn the small steps and things that they can do in their everyday life that will work towards mitigating the climate crisis. Let's find out what Buffalo Crossing will do to help mitigate the climate crisis. I'm joined now by three members of the Stantec team of approximately 20 people from the firm involved in Buffalo Crossing. Michael Banman of Winnipeg is the principal in charge and the design architect. Luisa Drope of Vancouver is Stantec's certified passive house designer and a specialist in energy modeling and building performance. And Jordan Lanaway of Winnipeg is Stantec's mechanical design engineer on the project. Michael Bamman, what kind of a challenge is Buffalo Crossing for Stantec? I think it's the perfect challenge, frankly, um, because it requires us to engage uh, our fully integrated practice, which I think very few practices have the benefit of having uh, an in-house uh, architecture and engineering team the way that Stantec is set up to do. And this project has a host of different challenges related to a whole series of different disciplines. And the best way to resolve those is to do it simultaneously. Luis Drope, you're a certified passive house designer and a specialist in energy modeling and building performance. What design principles do you employ in passive house design? It's about the passive elements that I bring on the project. It's about finding the right shape for the building. Um, so I did a mo multiple uh, analysis, like shading analysis, and I looked deeply into the weather that we are facing there. And then it was all about working with, with the design team to find a shape and an orientation to the building that we can capture the sun perfectly and all the passive elements of the building. So we have passive heating and passive cooling. That means that the HVAC system will be as small and simple in the end as possible. Jordan Lanaway, as the mechanical design engineer on the project, what are your responsibilities? The goal for a passive house is the mechanical systems play more of a supporting role, typically and especially in climates like ours where we have very hot summers and very cold winters, typically we rely heavily on the mechanical systems to deal with that and make people comfortable. And in a passive house, instead, we first look at the shape, orientation, shading, insulation, air tightness, all those things to do with the envelope and rely on passive means to make people comfortable first. Well, you still need mechanical systems, but we try to minimize them, simplify them, uh, make them as small as possible and as efficient as possible. So they're there, but they're a secondary role. And so it's a very integrated design approach to do that. And we have to work together and we have to speak the same language. And so we kind of look at it all together as one goal, but mechanically it's a secondary role. Michael Bamman, out of what materials will Buffalo Crossing be built? We are going to be using mass timber. 
with very low embodied carbon uh, footprint, which is going to be phenomenal. There's a, this will probably be the first fully mass timber building in Winnipeg. What's um, that mean to be mass timber? In typical sort of Canadian um, construction, uh, residential in particular, we're using small stick framed kind of members, right? Two by fours, two by sixes, two by eights, two by tens. And we also understand that when we're looking at a commercial passive house, we're looking at using wood um, because it has a low embodied carbon, meaning that it, it has a low carbon footprint for the um, for procuring the materials and preparing it and all this sort of stuff. In this case, we're looking at cross laminated timbers, which is essentially taking two by fours and putting them in two directions, much like you would a piece of plywood to give it increased strength. So the floors and the walls will be that, the core walls will be that as well, CLT uh, panels, and then the beams and columns will be a heavy timber, so a larger timber members, um, which of course helps with strength, but also with the fire side of things, which some people get a little bit concerned about, which wood is actually quite great in that regard. I understand that you need to maximize carbon sequestration. Carbon sequestration is simply holding on to the carbon and not allowing it to be released into the environment to do the damage that it does. So we're trying to keep that carbon back as long as we can. So in this case with mass timber, the key to carbon sequestration is almost an offset or a delay for it to actually work and do what it needs to do to sequester carbon and to keep it out of the atmosphere. It's not enough to simply use mass timber. You have to replant and reforest so that we continue. So once we pull the timber out of the forest and start to use it, of course, the carbon's embodied in it or it stays within it, sequestered. And then we want to take and plant more trees to cover the offset so that in the end, when this building comes down, maybe it can be recycled. Perhaps there's components that can be recycled or uh, there's also um, biomass with carbon capture that's being looked at, um, which could see mass timber in the future, uh, as I understand it, actually become net positive in, in terms of reducing overall carbon emissions. Those technologies aren't all in place yet. Um, they're being developed uh, currently. So even the, the selection of mass timber for this project, we went through a bit of analysis. I did listen to what you mentioned, your interview with Liz and her discussions about combining residential and commercial construction. And this comes down to the building envelope a little bit, where we, we tend to see with residential constructions that the insulation is placed in between the boards, the interior gypsum board and the exterior sheathing, whether it's plywood or a glass mat or something like that. And that's what we typically see for uh, residential and for lower use uh, commercial or light use commercial types of projects. In more institutional projects, what we see is the insulation moving to the outside or outboard insulation where you have reduced thermal bridging as a start that helps tremendously. So instead of your, especially in commercial construction, where you tend to be using steel studs and steel is a great conductor, a thermal conductor, which takes the energy from inside and conducts it outside or, or in summer, it does the opposite where it's bringing the, the, the warm air in. Um, you eliminate that. There are wall types that actually combine both and you can create a pretty incredible envelope by combining both. And some of the challenges are uh, particularly with outbound insulation, which, which is a better way to insulate. But one of the challenges is the thicker the insulation gets, you have to really start looking at how you support the cladding, the material that essentially conceals and gives the building its, its look, if you will, and keeps some water. It's sort of the first line of water defense. 
how that gets supported. And of course, the heavier the material, the bigger the challenge it is um, to reduce that thermal bridging, if you will. And, and so in our case, we're sort of skirting that issue in a way. Um, instead of using uh, a stick framed scenario, we're using a mass timber wall. And the, and the timber already has an inherent R value in it. So we have our sort of timber wall. You know, it's going to look beautiful on the inside, that warmth, that glow of wood, and everybody sort of likes that. And there's a biophilic piece to that, which is really quite nice, right? That then gets an air barrier, in this case, a vapor permeable air barrier. And then we have eight inches of insulation. You know, that is like your winter parka. Um, it's a phenomenal amount of insulation. It's going to keep the warm in and the cold out, so to speak, and, 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 and significantly reduce that thermal transfer. But in our case, we're going a step further and looking at how to support that cladding. And we're looking at using mechanical fasteners as opposed to what many projects will use, which is a thermal clip of some kind. They use some kind of material, whether it's a fiberglass or a polypropylene uh, material to separate, to reduce the amount of thermal bridging. In our case, we're trying to go a step further, which is going to push the construction industry a little bit to think a little bit differently um, in terms of how they do this. And, and we do have examples of how it's been done, how it's been done successfully. We have loading, but they're also going to have to participate in that. And that's going to help push the local construction industry, especially in a northern climate where the challenges are much greater than they are in a more temperate climate. Now, Louisa, speaking of climate, last summer was an indication across the prairies of extraordinary heat and an extraordinary absence of rain, which many people read as a changing climate. What did yes. you have to do in terms of climate modeling to figure out in which direction the climate is moving and then to incorporate that knowledge into the design? There are like future weather files where you can see where the weather is going. And in Winnipeg, the winters will be a little bit less cold, but it's still extremely cold. So we still face the same heating demand. But in the summer, it gets warmer as well. And that means um, that the summer will be ridiculous warm and we have to face more cooling demand than nowadays. That will be a problem that we have to put into the design. In Passive House, in the first step, you look that you capture as much sun as possible for heating to keep the heating demand low in the winter. But in the summer, then you face a lot of overheating if the sun is still entering the building. The first step you have to do to think about passive elements is external shading, because then you can just block out the sun and the sun will not be a heater anymore in that building. But if it's like 40 degree outside, then shading alone will not help anymore because it's too warm. And then we need active cooling. And we figured out a really beautiful design, a mechanical design. So this is Jordan's job then. And the only thing I do as a building performance consultant is that I do an overheating analysis and I give out the cooling load that the building has, and then we have to put in the equipment that is matching that load. So Jordan, if I could turn to you about heating and cooling in terms of the mechanics of the building, what are you incorporating into it to meet those needs? In a typical building, especially in Winnipeg, there's a lot of focus on winter heating because we have very cold winters. In the summer, buildings often around Winnipeg have air conditioning, but there's not a lot of passive design considered. And so for this Passive House project, the first step that's been done that makes a huge difference 
uh, especially with consideration for future global warming, is there's a lot of external shading. And so the high sun in the summer gets blocked to reduce cooling loads in the building. But in the shoulder season, when the sun is lower in the sky, it's allowed to enter into the space and passively warm the space. We've designed an HVAC that takes advantage of those passive solar gains in the shoulder season and in the winter, uh, allows them to enter on the south side of the building and heat up the space passively for free. And if it's too much heat, which is very often the case, we have very strong uh, solar gains, even in, even in January, a room facing south can get very hot. Our mechanical systems, uh, it's a, a heat pump system. And what it does is it allows you to absorb heat from one area. So on the south side, you can absorb it into the system and you can move that heat through a refrigeration cycle to other places in the building. So you can move that excess heat to the north side of the building where it may be cold because they don't have the sun. You can also move that heat to warm up ventilation air coming into the building. And the design that we're doing as well is a ground source heat pump system. So it's using the ground uh, for heat in the winter to pull heat out of the ground in the winter and deposit it in the summer. If there's any heat left over, we can put it in the ground and save it for later, like a battery. So the mechanical system is definitely playing a secondary role. It's, it's after we do the passive design elements but it is going to enable the building to absorb that passive heat and then move it to where it's needed. The building will be situated right on the margin of Lake Muir, which you know is a sizable pond, small lake. Will you be making use of it in terms of heat pump capacity, drawing the residual heat out of that? Yeah, great question. In the next phase of the design, we are uh, going to get into the design of the, the ground loop system. And one of the options that we are considering is the lake. And so it'd be a, a lake loop. And this is something similar to what they have at the forks for their system. So that would allow us to use the lake as a battery for depositing heat or pulling heat out uh, when needed. And that would most likely be done by having a pipe that goes into the lake, kind of like a slinky at the bottom of the lake with lots of surface area for heat transfer. That's the first option we're looking at. Depending on the capacity and cost benefit, we may also look at just a ground loop, putting it in the ground beside the building. That can either be a horizontal loop that's fairly shallow or a vertical loop that goes down quite deep. I did a deep read on the proposal and one of the terms I came across was building integrated photovoltaic electricity. That is a photovoltaic power station that you put on the roof and it's just integrated in the building envelope. That means it's on the roof or at the external wall. It is actually a quite normal photovoltaic, uh, but it's on the roof. It will be maybe also required for the passive house um, because we have just a limited electricity demand we can have for the building and it's quite low. We have to put every fridge, every cooking station, every microwave, every little detail that will be later in the building has to be captured in the calculation. And if we then have a too high electricity demand, we can compensate that with a photovoltaic. Michael, what standards do you have to meet to get passive house certification? The big piece is the energy target, uh, which is the 15 kilowatt hours per meter squared. That is a huge, huge piece of it. The other pieces uh, relate to air tightness and the number of air changes uh, per hour. The biggest outstanding item is the 15 kilowatts per square meter a year. Um, what like are a, normal houses say? Normal are 200 
250, some new buildings, maybe sometimes it's depending. A hospital has 400. Um, but you have to get to 15? We have to go to 15. So it's uh, like uh, reducing the energy ma- demand by over 90%. So that is why I said like at the end, like we are focusing firstly about passive elements because we want to heat the building with the sun. And we currently have a lot of beautiful, huge windows in the design and they will heat up the building by 50%. Like 50% of the heating demand will be heated by the windows and not by an active heating system. And those are the passive elements. And the same demand is for cooling that we can't go over 15. So we are also, we can't not just care about, oh, we want to have all the sun. Then we don't care about the summer where we have to cool it down again. This number needs to be super small as well. We depending again about passive elements to cool down the building like natural ventilation or external shading. And it's also nothing that is common in Canada to have external shading. Passive House is coming from Germany and there it's quite normal to have those elements, but here it's harder to implement that in the design. And the windows have to be three times greater in terms of what, what they call insulating glass units capacity. Is that right? Yes, it was extremely hard to find even a manufacturer who is capable of doing that and there's just one in Canada who's able to do that so we don't have the option to choose we just were lucky to find one person who said like okay I can do this. Michael is this part of a sign of the kind of change that Stantec is fostering here in the sense of pressing manufacturers to create products that meet the needs of passive housing in a way that will then make things more available to the rest of us. Yes, I mean, I think we've we've spoken to a number of manufacturers. I think that the unusual nature of passive house and the incredibly high performance demands make it unlike any other measuring stick. The product either can do it or it can't. Building performance in this level of demand everything matters. How can passive house principles in this building, about 18,000 square feet, two stories, be scaled up into larger buildings? Sometimes even easier to have larger buildings. The 15 kilowatts per square meter that are occupied. And if you have, for example, a high-rise building, you have the envelope per square meter where you like occupied square meter is much smaller. Like suddenly the roof doesn't matter anymore because we have thousands of square meter area, occupied area and just a small square of roof compared to that. And suddenly we don't have to put like a meter of insulation on the roof anymore because it doesn't matter. Scaling the building up further to what Louisa said, I think the same fundamental principles apply. It might get easier when the building gets bigger. The heat pump system that we've specified for this building is on the lowest end of the range of sizes for that type of system, uh, is more common in larger sizes. So I think it certainly is scalable, and we are seeing more systems that jive with what Passive House is trying to do come on the market. Michael, what kind of timeline are you thinking of for this building and this project? And I, I don't mean construction, I mean the life of the building and how long it will perform for Fort White Alive in the way that you are planning it to live? 
we're targeting 100 years. So when we start to think about identifying and selecting and specifying various materials and looking at the assemblies, we have to take that into consideration and, and, and how long will each piece last for? How does it get taken off and replaced or refinished or refurbished and so on? So in this case, we're, we're targeting 100 years. We've been talking really technically about it, but that's only part of it. If, if the building only performs technically, it won't be successful for Fort White, right? This building is really about, about inviting people to the site, giving them reason to be there, getting them excited about sustainability, demonstrating how comfortable, how quiet, how incredible Passive House's spaces are, which should drive curiosity and wonder and hopefully action. Michael Banman of Winnipeg is the principal in charge and the design architect of Buffalo Crossing. Luisa Drope of Vancouver's Stantex certified passive house designer and a specialist in energy modeling and building performance. Jordan Lanaway of Winnipeg is Stantex mechanical design engineer on the project. Fort White Alive is planning to open Buffalo Crossing in the fall of 2022. I want to say a special thanks to our supporting team from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba, Jason Chan, Jason Shields, and Brandy O'Reilly. You can listen to us on Spotify and Apple and Google Podcasts. And if you like us, please subscribe. Tell your friends about us. You can also hear us on the radio in Southern Manitoba on UMFM at 101.5 FM on Wednesday mornings at 1130. I'm Terry McLeod. Thanks for listening to Prairie Design Lab. Talk to you next week.